<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Success How I Did It from Business Insider. I'm Rich Filoni. Sally Krawcheck has run Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch Wealth Management, U.S. Trust, and City Private Bank, and was City CFO before that. Now she runs Elevest, an investment firm she started so women can create wealth for themselves. But she doesn't like to use the phrase empowering women. That isn't about empowering anybody. That's about us recognizing the power we have, the strength we have, and, and using it. Over her career, Krawcheck may have held a lot of sway, but her time on Wall Street was far from rosy. And we're here in our office downtown in the financial district, and you were saying that you were kind of getting a <laughs> bit PTSD. Uh, PTSD. Yeah. <laughs> Why what was that about? Well, I've worked down here a few times. Uh, the first time was in the late 80s when I worked for Solomon Brothers in investment banking right out of college. It was the absolute wild west of... Don't do that much all day. Work all night. You know, don't take a shower. Run for the airplane. Uh, go to the strip bars. You know, are those people snorting cocaine? I mean, it was just the wild west. You know, what you hear about old Wall Street frat club, basically uh, frat club. Yeah. Lots of you know sexual harassment, like we're we're hearing about in the Me Too era. And then I worked down here right after business school for DLJ uh, when they had the first World Trade Center bombing. Um, we then I worked for Bernstein when they had the World Trade Center bombing and was down here a lot after that. And then I worked down here when I worked for Merrill, where uh, we looked right over the World Trade Center site, Ground Zero site, and uh, I got reorged out of that job. So I can't say there's been a lot of positive stuff I can remember being down here. So if I vomit in the middle of this podcast, you'll know why. Okay. Well, sorry about that. Maybe <laughs> okay. maybe we could get you in a, a better frame of mind. So when you were a kid, did you imagine yourself like on Wall Street as like some powerful exec? Oh, God, no. I didn't even know what Wall Street was. In fact, if I were to let you in on a secret, when I showed up on Wall Street, I really, really didn't know what a stock was. I kept reading the definition, but I didn't know what it was. And pretty soon after I got here, we had the crash of 87. I mean, weeks after I got here. And so there's always a sense of being really sort of off kilter. No, but when I was a little girl, I, I wanted to be a princess, obviously. My second choice was banker. And where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? Uh, so I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. Family of four kids, age difference, oldest, youngest, three years and 11 months. No twins. The math actually can work. And I was, as you would imagine, sort of bossy. <laughs> <laughs> and I read that you were bullied out of your all-girls middle oh, school? Oh, yeah. I was that kid. I was that kid. 
you know, it was a waspy. I've, you know, my family has been in Charleston for hundreds of years kind of place. And I was the little bit too smart kid with a Coke bottle, thick glasses, the corrective shoes. It just didn't fit in very well. And I got bullied by my all-girls middle school um, to the point where I started the year seventh grade making A's and by the end of it was making C's. Ate lunch all by myself. And so I, I love to say there was nothing they could do to me on Wall Street that was worse than seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have to adjust your personality at all because of this as you were growing up? No. Well, you know, I, I didn't adjust my personality. You certainly get, I don't want to say a chip on the shoulder, but you certainly feel like you have something to prove. Um, high school, college, even as an adult, there's a sense of for the hurt kid that you've left in your past, that you're sort of taking care of her a little bit. And you're proving that you can be successful and make it after, you know, having a, a period of time in your life in which you're that miserable and alone. So when you ended up on Wall Street, did you immediately want to start rising up a hierarchy? I immediately wanted to get out. Really, my 20s were just directionless. I knew I didn't like investment banking. I didn't get it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't love the work. I loved parts of it. So it really, my 20s, instead of I want to go and be senior, it was I haven't found a fit yet. I went to business school after working at Solomon Brothers with the sole intention of getting out of Wall Street and switching careers. And I wanted to go into media. So I got the plum job, the summer internship at Time Magazine, the job of my dreams. The summer was okay, not great. They were actually even then laying people off, right? So this sort of long, you know, wave of traditional media shrinking. So that was already happening. And devastatingly, I didn't get a job offer coming out of the summer. The guy who I worked with did. And ended up going on to be one of the most senior people at Time Warner, so they obviously made a very good decision, but that was devastating. I then got a job offer at Disney, which was my dream job, dream job. And I thought, well, this is how it's supposed to work out, right? I didn't get that job offer. I got this other really better one, but it was in California, um, and I was married. And my husband was also on Wall Street and was not interested in moving to California, so I turned it down. And a few months later, found out he was having an affair with a friend of mine. And I'm like, dude dude, could you maybe have mentioned the affair when I was turning down my dream job? So I ended up back on Wall Street after business school, just devastated, throwing up between orientation sessions because my marriage had fallen apart and I was in a job I didn't want and I'd made the move to business school to switch. So no, <laughs> so no, no, my 20s were not about becoming senior. My 20s were actually about finding a fit, which I finally did in equity research. When that insight came to me that that's what I wanted to do, it was the scales fell away. And I knew that was a job that I was going to love and, and I hoped to be successful at. Your dreams of just escaping Wall Street, getting into media or Disney, was that just kind of anything but Wall Street? But then when you found something within it, it was, you maybe it, wanted to stay? It wasn't quite anything but Wall Street. It was no to investment banking. Here's this other idea. Oh, that didn't work out. And then I was a stay-at-home mom for a while, which I hated. I mean, I love my kids, but I hated being a stay-at-home mom. And it was really interesting because that gave me the time and the space to let things sort of fall into place. 
where, okay, it didn't get the two top media jobs I wanted. I don't like banking. But what did I like about banking? What, what was I looking for in media? And I, and I learned about myself. I love, I love building earnings models. It's like my, I love it. I really like writing, even though it's hard. I really like dealing with smart people. I didn't like the team, you know, eat what you kill dynamic of investment banking. So where else can you have those things? with a lot of personal responsibility and, and equity research is, is where I went. And the timing was spectacular because it was right before that period, um, you know, which I don't think we'll ever see again when equity research analysts were sort of the kings of Wall Street, believe it or not. And eventually you ended up being referred to commonly in the business press as the, quote, most powerful woman on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you would see that? Uh, pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, did it feel strange in the sense that this was you were trying to escape Wall Street and now you're well, in this position? I was on Wall Street. I mean, I tried yeah. to escape investment banking, okay. but I okay. was I was successful quickly as a research analyst. I became director of research for Bernstein and put in place a very different strategy from the rest of Wall Street or the rest of equity research, and where. Most research analysts were both in investment banking and in research, sort of straddled the two, fundamental conflict between the two. Because, you know, if you're a corporate, you want to sell your stock high. If you're an individual investor or corporate investor, you want to buy that stock low, you know, who are you advising, right? So at Bernstein, I took us out of the investment banking business, gave up a lot of money, but it ended up being the right call. Um, so there was, you know, this this level of success that occurred relatively quickly, mostly because I'd found a really good fit. What did you learn about power dynamics dealing with CEOs of large banks so often? Um, how long do we have? Hours and hours. It depends <laughs> on the CEO. I believe I have worked directly for more big financial institution CEOs than anybody else on the planet. And they're all different. And, you know, some of them are inclusive and expansive and confident and run your business and, you know, call me when I can help and here's some coaching and, you know, here's how I'm going to help you get better and here's how I'm going to celebrate my leadership team. And others are micromanaging and directive and have to be the smartest guy in the room you know, and you can't find a way in with them. So, you know, I've sort of worked for all kinds. There are many different ways to be successful as a CEO. Um, And I don't think there's a single rule of thumb about how to be successful with a CEO. I thought there was. I thought there was. During the course of working for any number of them, you know, deliver your numbers, do it in an ethical way, be open, share, you know, the numbers with everybody, Try to be the good egg who is the C- at least the CEO's problems, and sometimes that didn't work either. <laughs> so, in fact, when I got reorganized out of Bank of America when I was running Merrill, I don't think my numbers had ever been better. Was, we were beating plan. We were gaining share. We had turned the business around as we were directed to do a couple of years before. We were growing. I think we were the only business of the company that was growing at the time, and and that was my business, and I got reorged out, which was sort of a real eye-opener. Because if you're brought up to believe in sort of a fundamental fairness, that feels below the belt. Yeah. So for context there, that was 2011. Mm -hmm. Bank of America's CEO, Brian Moynihan, he didn't 
fire you, but he gave you an offer that he knew that you would refuse. No, he, he, like, he, 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 and I'm doing air quotes here. He yeah. reorganized me out. Okay, okay. Um, and it's, you know, a couple other folks and, you know, this one was demoted and the demoted again and then she was fired. And so it was, it, it wasn't a, you know, single bullet to the skull. But I have to tell you the truth is it felt like that. You know, when you're brought into a CEO's office and informed of a reorg and given 20 minutes from the time you're told to the time you see it on CNBC, it doesn't feel unemotional, right? And of course, with any reorg, you can say, well, there's nothing personal about it, but you choose who to reorg and you choose who to keep. Um, and so there's just as much pain, I think, on a reorg as there is in a what would be considered a traditional firing. Around that time, there were some reports that there were factions out to get you because of the CEO who hired you, uh, Ken Lewis. Mm -hmm. And then when he stepped down, there was some politics. Is there any validity to that? Um, I'm pausing because it's hard to know. You know, I've read stuff like that. But what I would say is that when you're brought in by one CEO and then you're working for another CEO – and that's, you know, the second CEO didn't bring you in, you're at risk. Individuals tend to want to have people around them who who they're comfortable with, who they have confidence in, who they've selected. I totally understand that. And so when you look at my career, and I was brought in to turn around first Smith Barney by Sandy Weil, and then there was Chuck Prince, and there was Vikram Pandit. And then I was brought in to turn around Merrill by Ken Lewis, and there was Brian Moynihan. When you have that kind of change, what one CEO thought was important may not be what the next one thinks is important. You know, what one prioritized might not be what the other prioritized. What one was looking for in an executive is not what another one is looking for in an executive, perhaps. And so navigating the volatility is challenging. And so to go back, I also got fired (laughs) by Vikram when I was running Smith Barney over at City. Different story, different set of circumstances. In 2008? This was 2008. Smith Barney had missold products to clients that we thought were low risk and ended up being high risk and we thought would lose a little money in the downturn and lost all the money in the downturn. And I advocated returning the funds and Vikram disagreed and there was a back and forth that went to the board and I won but got fired, which happens when you go up against your CEO. Um, But anyway, to back up, you think about that move from Sandy Weil to Chuck Prince to Vikram Pandit. If I tend to look at my experience in isolation. I said, well, Vikram fired me. You know, ooh. Well, actually, I was the very last of any of Sandy Wiles' direct reports to still be reporting to Vikram. So if you think about our leadership team, the entire leadership team got wiped out and, you know, re- rebuilt bet- amongst those three CEOs. So it's not at all unusual, particularly in times of crisis, if you're going to have different CEOs, your your chances of losing your job skyrocket. And in your book, Own mm-hmm. It, you had mentioned that you're firing from a city that you think that at least it was partially due to your being a woman. I know. Very scandalous, isn't it? You say it and you're like, oh, she went there. She went there. Oh, my gosh. She's playing the woman card. Let me explain. I very much believe, I, I know that I was fired from City because I was different and that I was literally told by individuals who said, I'm carrying a message from the CEO, literally sit down and shut up, like literally sit down and shut up. And I wouldn't because I really believed that we had made a mistake, that there was a path to curing the mistake, that 
it was client-friendly, that it would actually save the bank money over not a quarter, but over some period of years, that it would enhance the reputation of the business. I truly believe that. And what the research tells me is that when you look at the difference in the genders, and there are differences, that women tend to be more relationship-focused, more long-term focused, more mission and purpose focused. And when you when you sort of think about how those fed into my position versus the position of the guys, you say, okay, that's a difference that led to my having a different point of view that led to my getting fired. I would never say it was directly like, hey, she's a girl, let's get rid of her, but something more subtle. And as a way to counterbalance that, you said that you're against this uh, idea of, like, quote, empowering women. (laughs) What did you mean by that? Well, so everybody talks about empowering women. And it seems a little, frankly, patronizing to me because women have plenty of power. We are more than half the workforce. We control $5 trillion of investable assets. We control with our spouses and partners another $6 trillion. We, you know, direct the majority of consumer spending, whether it's 80% or 75%, we can debate that. But we have massive amounts of power. The issue is we haven't been using it. And the other issue is that so much of the pop culture advice to professional women for years has told us that we individually can advance ask for that raise, take the seat at the table, you go, girl. There was a sense of, I own my destiny. And if I follow these instructions that successful women write about, then I can be successful too. And if I'm not successful, then I didn't follow the directions well enough. And it hasn't worked. It just hasn't worked. What has worked, and we're seeing it more recently, is women coming together, whether it's the New York Times where their women's diversity group banded together to request and make the case for a longer parental leave, whether it's the women of Nike coming together and exposing you know, some of the tough things about the culture there, whether it's the actresses coming together with Harvey Weinstein, whether it's you know, women rallying around Susan Fowler around Uber. You know, that's what is working now, is not the individual woman Um, trying to make it on her own, separated from the pack, but really women who are supporting each other and coming together and driving real cultural change for the first time. So that isn't about empowering anybody. That's about us recognizing the power we have, the strength we have, and and using it. And that ties into the company that you founded in 2015, Elvest. Could you explain what that is? Yeah. So Elvest is an investing platform for women, tech-enabled. We started as a digital platform only. We've added financial advisors and um, certified financial planners. For those who are listening who are saying, gosh, an investing platform for women, I don't know about that. It seems to me that numbers are pretty gender neutral and do women really need their own thing? The answer is I thought that too and came to the conclusion that we do need our own thing. Despite the fact I just said we've got the $5 trillion of investable assets, we've kept too much of it in the bank versus men. We've kept more than 70% of our money in the bank, missing out on the market returns that you can get from investing. And it costs the women who are listening to this certainly hundreds of thousands for some number of them millions um, over the course of their lives. For some number of them, it's a bigger deal than the gender pay gap. And so what I sort of stood back and said, 
something on Wall Street isn't work in the investing industry slash Wall Street is not working for these women. And maybe it's because, you know, when an industry's 86% of financial advisors are men, it's not too big a leap to come to the conclusion that the industry was built more around what men are looking for and things like outperforming and beating the market and picking the winners. I mean, these seem like very competitive things when we talk to women about investing. They're not competitive. They don't care about winning. They care about reaching their goals. In addition, you know, so many of the investing algorithms, such as with medical research, such as with research on cars, is built to a male prototype. Well, okay, except women live longer, our salaries peak sooner, we take more career breaks. Whoops. If you're investing to a male, you know, according to a male algorithm, you got a problem if you're a female. And so as we dug into it, there were certain preferences that women had that were holding them back from investing. And there were certain ways that technology has been pulled together, which, as in so many areas, really favor the men over the women. What have you learned about yourself and leadership style from running your own business? You know, I, I think I really have been meant to be an entrepreneur. People keep saying to me, but, you know, you ran Smith Barney and Merrill, and so you're, you run big, complex companies. Yes, and I was also a research analyst where if I didn't do something every day, nothing happened. And it's sort of the same with being an entrepreneur. If you take a day off, like nothing happens, right, because you're trying to build something from from nothing. I love our mission of getting women more money, therefore getting women more power, therefore making the economy stronger, making society stronger. I mean, I just am so passionate about our mission and what we're doing. So I've learned I'm very mission-driven, much more so than, hey, let's manage this complex company. The second thing is I love to work. I just do. And I don't like to manage as much. And, you know, the whole, it's, it's time for your quarterly review and here are our salary bands and all that stuff. I love writing our newsletter and I love being out there and meeting with potential clients and I love talking to people about what we're doing and I love leading. And so I've learned that, you know, on the leader manager, I tend to lean more toward the leader than the manager. And I've learned that I think we've got a huge opportunity in front of us that this market, which has literally, literally been called a niche market by the industry for years, is massive and is activated and understands, is beginning to understand how not having as much money in the men in their lives have kept them in jobs they might not want to be in, in relationships they might not want to be in, um, not taking the trip around the world they want to take, you know, that it has been limiting to them. And as we go to them and, and we engage with them on it, this sense that, you know what, it's not your fault, there's sort of a, a sense of tremendous relief. Mm-hmm. And what do you have coming up next? Um, why would I tell you that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just keep it top secret. Okay, well, okay. I'll tell you what we've just brought out. Um, so it almost feels like it's next because it's so new. Another thing we hear from women is it's something like about 85% of them are interested in impact investing. Impact investing, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with it, is investing for a financial return, yes, and to have a positive, working to have a positive social or economic impact. At Elevest, our Elevest Impact portfolios do that and do it both by getting money into the hands of women and working to advance women. 
Now, this can seem a little strange at first. What? Women? I don't know. That feels niche. Again, half, you know, 51% of the population. And if you're not investing in women, you're investing in men who are awesome. However, I might invite you to consider that when you give a woman a loan, and they're less likely to get loans today than men, they are more likely to pay it back. When they build wealth, the vast majority of it goes into their community and into their families. That companies that are run by women or with more women in senior leadership outperform those that are men only, not by a little bit, by a ton. I would argue there is the opportunity not just to earn good return, you know, competitive returns, but to look at these superior business results that occur. And that the other thing I would say is diversification is sort of this holy grail of investing. And if we're wholly invested and in, almost wholly invested in the guys, you know, it might be time to bring in the gals a little bit too. So we've recently rolled that out. As I said, the majority of women express interest. Just a single-digit percent of financial advisors have even spoken to them about it. And so we had real excitement when we brought that out with our little bit of an LFS twist. How do you personally define success now? It's impact. I thought about this a lot. After I left Bank of America, I spent the better part of a year trying to decide what was important to me. And success is impact. I could have gone back to a big company, could have had a much bigger office. I could have been more comfortable on a day-to-day basis. And the great thing about what's going on in business today is you can have an impact, maybe even a greater impact at a small company, whereas historically it had to be at a big company. If you have a great idea, you can get it out there for free, for free, right? You can head onto Twitter, head over to Facebook, and you know it doesn't necessarily have to go viral. I mean, by... You know, being out there with that idea consistently, and if it's a good one, people will listen to it, gravitate towards it, and there are many more press outlets as well so that you can find places that are interested in something that may not have been, in, have been as interesting for a broad audience. Combine that with at a startup, you can move so much more quickly, so much more quickly than a big company. All of a sudden, I can make the argument you can have a greater impact on people's behavior from a startup than you can from one of the the big guys. And we've talked a lot about different aspects of your career, but is there maybe a single best piece of advice that you would give to someone who's maybe early in their career, just starting out? Yeah, it's work hard. I, I don't know of a better bit of advice than that. Be persistent, be resilient, work hard. The correlation between hard work and success is pretty strong. And it's not every year and it's not every few years maybe, you know, periods when they sort of split off. But in general, if you keep at something, you'll be successful. I am no smarter than any other individual who started in Solomon Brothers 1987. But I just kept at it and refused to go away and worked hard and found things I loved and I wanted to work hard at. So I don't have any hacks or tricks for success. I just love my work, love what I'm doing, realize how fortunate I am to be able to do it, have that insecurity from seventh grade that keeps me going. (laughs) Just work. Well, thank you very much, Sally. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It from Business Insider. Our show is produced by Anna Mazarakis, and our executive producer is Dan Bobkoff. I'm Rich Filoni. Please don't forget to subscribe to Success How I Did It on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review. If you really like us, give us five stars because that really helps other people find our show. We'll be back next week with another episode of Success.
Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home, yes, cool, or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com/internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the US to H2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement, other restrictions apply.